Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here as ever with Mr Pete Wall. Uh, Pete, how are you this week? I'm doing good Paul. I could talk about how tired I am. I could talk about how the world's all going down the toilet. I could talk about the stresses and strains that we're all under right now but I'm not going to do that because I'm here to talk to you my friend and talk films for the next hour or so. Uh, yeah, pr- pretty good man. Uh, life is currently quite intense. It's quite busy but luckily as ever we've got films to see us through uh, to a certain degree although I think in a moment we'll get on to one of the reasons why I for one have fewer perhaps films in my life than <laughs> I did a week or so ago but how are you doing? Yeah I'm, I'm, I'm all right I'm all right to be honest kind of the same as you I could moan on about certain things in in work work stressful I'm no I'm not going to go there I'm great I've been watching a lot of films again recently because the evenings have drawn in so that's quite nice um, yeah I've, I'm lucky enough to have a cinema that's still that's still open but yeah, we talked again on the last episode about, yes, we're going back to weekly, we're going to do it, we're going to get there. And then we'll dive straight into the foyer with this introduction, I think. And then, um, yeah, and then there was Pete, Cineworld, your local cinema. What's what's happened there? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a bit of a, a contradiction or oxymoron to say Cineworld, your local cinema, but it is actually accurate. I mean, it's a, a minute away from my home and... As people may well be aware at the time that we put this out, uh, Cineworld have wound down operations at least until the new year, if not some months into the new year, as what seems to be a direct knock-on effect of the postponement of the release of uh, No Time to Die, the new James Bond movie. So... Yes, uh, left in the unenviable position of of living very close to one of my favourite places to go, uh, but that place being inaccessible again for an extended period of time, which is, let's say, a shame. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, more on this later, but uh, my last experience with Cineworld was sort of... Um, well, I would say bittersweet, but but just bitter, actually. Um, I, I attempted to watch a final film, a sort of swan song, before we go off into this period of, of blackout from our local cinema, and it just didn't work out. Um, this is a big deal. Not my cinema, local cinema, cine world, of course, I can survive. The chain itself making this move at this time is not going to hit people in a in a way that inspires any particular confidence in the industry at this point I don't think at least in terms of big screen offerings I mean how are you feeling I know that this doesn't directly affect you in quite the same way because you've got a couple more options where you are than maybe I have but what's your take on on the decision itself I suppose I mean I did put something fairly hostile towards the company themselves on on social media the other day it's it's an interesting one I mean um, obviously, my heart goes out to anyone that works for the company first and foremost, because those guys—that's a horrible situation to be in. Um, and yeah, and anyone that works for Cineworld has has absolutely my greatest of sympathy. I don't know what I think of this move um, from a perspective of of helping the situation. Though I fully understand that it's a costly thing to run a cinema. Um, I won't say I know the ins and outs of the cost to run a cinema. Um, I don't know. My concern with this is it's kind of a double-edged sword. So, okay, Cineworld, they've shut their doors for the time being. And then on the basis of... Shortly after that, Disney announced that Soul is moving to a Disney Plus release. Maybe that would have happened anyway. No one knows what's going to happen with Wonder Woman. The difficulty is, is you kind of... 
it's kind of what came first, the chicken or the egg. If Cineworld shut the doors, then cinemas, then studios are less likely to release, even even less likely to release films into the cinemas that are left opening. So whether or not this harms, the, do you see where I'm coming from this one? Potentially it does harm, harm the wider industry. Now, in terms of my local cinema, um, I have an Odeon local to me. They had dropped a weekend opening as of next week, possibly because it's half term. They seem to be running seven days again. Now, I don't wish I don't wish to rub salt in an open wound, but next week I've got Rocky, Rocky Four, Dog Soldiers, Brief Encounter, Scream, Silence of the Lambs. Like they have got they and seemingly View. I've got a friend of mine who lives near View. Are seemingly going all out to fill up cinemas with some kind of films to make an effort to get people in. So I don't know. I'm torn, and obviously my thoughts on Cineworld from my time there have never I've never loved them as a as an operator. But I, I'm torn on this one. I really am. What do you think, Pete? Well, yeah, and I suppose, and you'd know, I guess, about this. But Cineworld, obviously, the parent company of of Picture House Cinemas as well. This means yes. that some smaller outlets are presumably shutting down along with the big big box. Yeah. So the little theatre in Bath is is shut down yeah, at the moment as well. Yeah. Unfortunately. The, the location at which I was married to my beautiful wife. Uh, so that in itself yes. is is quite <laughs> sad. And it would have been perhaps the place we would have gone for our second anniversary that's just passed. But obviously that wasn't an option. Um, yeah. And, and sort of going on a romantic cinema date in, in full face coverings is maybe not not as romantic as it as it previously was. But yeah, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it, man? Because the temptation, like you were saying, the temptation is to sort of rail against the company and sort of um, shout on social media about, you know, what scumbags they are and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, we're not, this is not a shock that, that you know, a big cinema chain makes big chain decisions. I mean, the bottom line is what matters to the company. If they can make money, they will. If they can't, then they'll do what they need to do to protect their interests and protect their business and to a certain degree that's the dance that we're in you know when our distributors are a huge corporations this is kind of what we get and I don't like it I don't feel good about it I don't feel good about being deprived of yet more culture in a time where culture is one of the best escapes that we have from the bleakness of some of the things that are going on around us but I guess I'm trying my best to kind of suck it up and be philosophical about it and wait it out again and not add to the noise and the complaint and the um, the sort of fist waving and finger wagging that's going on across our society right now. So, yeah, I disappointed on a personal level. But as you quite rightly point out, Paul, my disappointment pales into the into insignificance when compared with the situation faced by the staff of that company, who have essentially been booted with little to no support into the abyss for the time being, and who knows how long that time will be. So. It's a tough one, man. It feels like a pretty depressing way to open up our show, but it's entirely relevant right now. Increasingly, these things are occurring and we would be remiss if I think we didn't cover them and speak about them, at least to some degree, without getting into a big sort of moany, complainy kind of tirade on the show. Yeah, absolutely, and I'll try. I'll try and avoid that because, um, yeah, you know, you know my feelings in this one world. But yeah, absolutely, and I just wanted to reiterate. Yeah, it's just, it's just a sad. It's very sad to be honest that anyone's a denied employment, um, and b denied the cinema. What I will say though is, Cineworld could have done a better job than it leaking to the papers before mm. the staff knew they were going to close. That is a disgrace. Uh, but that's all I moan about Cineworld now on this podcast. What have we got so next? So next, <laughs> much better news. Let's focus on direct film production stuff. This is the news that Anya Taylor-Joy has been cast in the role of Furiosa for what will be the follow-up, the sequel of sorts to Mad... 
a prequel. You're absolutely prequel, right. Yes, yeah, of course. Uh, the, yeah. the backstory to the Furiosa character from Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, I mean, what's not to love, man? I love Anya Taylor-Joy. I think we talk about her in glowing terms often enough on the show for people to get that impression. We both absolutely raved about Mad Max Fury Road and, you know, let's have another 10 of that movie if we possibly can. So this seems like a match made in heaven. I mean, have we seen Anya Taylor-Joy in a role that will require the, the grittiness and the hard edge of a film like that or what you might imagine a film like that would be like? Perhaps um, not. I think if she's read the reviews for X-Men New Mutant, she will have developed a fairly hard edge. But yes, yes, that, no. maybe can channel that into this <laughs> this particular production. And that's a yeah. film that has been robbed from me, tragically, by the closing of the cinema. But uh, Oh, it's one of the worst films I've seen in many yeah, years but, but, um, but yeah elsewhere I mean she's she's excellent and I'm sure she's more than capable we've got Chris Hemsworth in this one as well right and um, who was the guy yeah. who's also in the Trial of Chicago 7 um, Yaya Abdul Mahin Richard his name completely. yeah yeah no I think you're about now. right Yaya um, uh, Abdul Mateen I think met perhaps anyway we're around the, the right place but yeah this guy really good in one of the films that we're going to feature review today and um, joining the cast there I think those are all the names that we have so far but you must be jazzed for this surely I'm very excited for this and I've read a lot of kind of a lot of not hate is possibly well it's the internet so it immediately becomes hate so um, a lot of people sort of moan it and like um, Charlie's the one says she's kind of heartbroken not to be asked back to play the role um, and I get that I get why you'd want to come back and, and play the role again and a lot of people saying oh well she looks incredible look how long young she looks it wouldn't be difficult to make her look younger and like but what I like is the fact that George Miller's gone no I'm not de-aging people I want to recast because Whatever you think of de-aging, whatever you think going back to the Irishman, the technology is not quite as good as the t- as the studios and the filmmakers think it is. Like it, especially in the Irishman, it's distracting. In the Irishman, there are moments when it's fantastic. There's moments when it works well. There's moments when it doesn't work. The Marvel films generally do a good job of it, but again, there's moments when it's distracting. I don't think the technology's there yet to make it flawless, and it's nice to see a director acknowledge that. Where he's gone, no, I'd love to have done that, but I don't think I can do it well enough. So we will recast. So. Um, yeah, I'm I'm all on board with this. George, the fact that George Miller's back on back directing. Um, I my concern is where does it go after Fury Road? Because for me, Fury Road is nigh on a perfect film. It's one of the finest bits of action cinema. Committed to a big screen, full stop. So how, can this live up to expectation? I don't know, but I'm excited to. I'm yeah, excited and to at watch the current rate of things, this will be <laughs> dropping in about 2023. So you've got time to get your know, anticipation levels up before we actually, you know, get this thing in <laughs> in cinemas. If cinemas even exist at the point at which this is released. Um, anything else yeah. for news uh, this week, Paul? No, there's everything I wanted to talk about. Cool. Well, week. we'll pop off uh, for a break for just a second. We'll be back with popcorn movies right after this. So back we are with popcorn movies. This is where we talk about anything that we've seen recently, no matter what age, no matter where we've watched it. Um, I'll jump in first. I'm quite keen to talk about one that I watched only this afternoon, Pete. Um, I may have mentioned this uh, on the last episode, but I've been going through with my wife the entirety of Michael Mann's back catalogue, which is very exciting because I fucking love that director. Um, and it's been a great trip to go back through uh, all of his films, not just the ones I've seen, but f- picking up things I didn't even know he's made. Um, and this is one of those films. This is uh, from 1979. It was made for a TV movie called The Jericho Mile. Um, he directed, Michael Mann directed this. This stars Peter Strauss, Richard Lawson, Brian Dennehy is probably the only name 
he may I recognised in this film anyway. Um, this tells the story of a prisoner um, played by Peter Strauss. Um, yeah, prisoner played by Peter Strauss who basically can run a s almost four-minute mile. Um, and people outside of the prison get wind that he can run a sub-four-minute mile and want him to train for the Olympics. But the complication is he's a prisoner, he's serving life for murder. So how do they do that? So that's kind of the focus of the story. Um, it's a lot more of a dialed-back kind of intimate character study than... Well, then Michael Mann does the character studies fairly well, but this seems it's a lot more dialed-back than what you'd expect from Michael Mann. I would say... It's not as relentlessly as exciting as all of his films, as all of his, yes, yeah, certainly all of his, most of his other films. Um, but what it does, when it's, it's always interesting, I think, Pete, to see a director's first film. So you can see flashes of what, of what's to come. Like certainly, certainly there's a couple, there's a couple of races that are set up. They basically, the, the kind of, the other cool thing they do is they build like an, a, a athletics qualifying racetrack within the prison itself um so these guys can have a proper sanctioned race so we can qualify to race for the olympics and it goes on from there so those moments the actual races the races themselves fantastically shot there's some brilliant brilliant stuff in here and just yeah flashes not not his best film by a long stretch but flashes of man's future brilliance for sure so yeah if you get a chance to check it out and you are a michael mann completionist the jericho Mile. nice um i've got first uh, i guess a, a companion piece for one that i mentioned a few weeks back on the show, that one was Chevalier. This one is Suntan. It's another Greek movie. And uniting them, apart from being Greek movies, is the star, uh, Makis Papadimitriou, nailed it, uh, who features in both films in a fairly leading role, or I guess sort of a, a, a major supporting role in Chevalier and, and the leading role in this film. Suntan tells this story of a middle-aged guy, a kind of schlubby middle-aged guy. He's a doctor. And things haven't quite worked out with his career trajectory in the way that he was hoping. He finds himself with an opportunity to be assigned as the island doctor for what is a Greek island that is incredibly popular with tourists. So every high season, you're going to be inundated with people who've, you know, got drunk and fallen off the back of a moped or whatever. But they need an island doctor who's going to take on the increased demands of the medical services. He takes that role, but he's not altogether in a good place psychologically and it seems as though this guy is kind of pining for a youth that is rapidly slipping away through a chance encounter he meets a group of beautiful um, you know taut bodied young people who are partying together sort of getting off with each other taking drugs and you know staying out late and decides that he's gonna befriend these people and sort of become a part of the group what could possibly go wrong um what what transpires is that you know being a slightly creepy looking schlubby middle-aged man hanging out with you know girls and guys who are 20 years old might not be without a few pitfalls not least this guy completely um ignoring his duties as an actual medical doctor it's it's a good movie man it's a dark movie it's a movie that goes to some pretty um sort of the heart of darkness when it comes to uh, a sort of nihilistic um hopelessness in a person who has almost given up on himself but is going to pretend that he can carry on by just making sure the party never stops you know, even though inside the party stopped long ago. Uh, but as I say, it goes to some pretty dark places, despite all the sunshine and, and, and 
buttocks and cleavage and stuff that splashes its way all over this this movie Makis Papadimitriou at the centre is a compelling figure gross in this movie repellent at times in this movie but a compelling actor and someone that I guess I've only cottoned on to recently and so I'm going to look out for for other stuff that he does but yeah I would recommend this if um, you know you're, you like a bit of kind of um, dark character study we talked about a movie for example like Holiday not that long ago I was going to say it does it's yeah it's yeah and, and like in the, the vague territory when it's like you know there's sunshine everywhere but stuff's going on in the shadows I guess as a subgenre um so that one's suntan and it's, it's pretty good what else have you got uh this is St Maud um which we were going to feature review last week um until Sydney World shut its doors um I'll talk a bit about the film first and then you Pete can talk a bit about your experience of trying to watch it I guess um, yeah, this has been very hyped, and I would say for the most part deservedly so. Um, it's a very, very grim, very bleak, and very effective horror slash character study, I guess, as as much as it is. It's kind of a character study as much as it is an overt horror film, to be honest. Um, it's really, really, it's a really strong piece of work from first-time um, feature director um, Rose Glass, so a lot to a lot to look forward to, hopefully, in her future career. Um, I won't say too much about the story because I didn't know much about this going in and it does it is more effective that way. But the long and the short of it is um, you've got uh, Morphid Clark who plays Maud, um, who is a nurse um, who becomes basically obsessed with kind of saving the souls of her patients. Um, and by becoming obsessed with saving the soul of her patients, she takes her religion very, very, very seriously, shall we say. Um, so yeah, it definitely explores the darker sides of obsession, the darker sides of, of religion, um, in fairness. Um, and you've got uh, Jennifer L is on brilliant supporting duty as the patient she tries to save the soul of, who kind of takes it upon herself to try and save Maud herself. Um, yeah, not for the faint-hearted this one, uh, but it is an incredibly, incredibly effective horror film. Um, I think I need to watch it twice for it to fully sink in. Um, there's some some of the again if we come to do if we ever come to do sort of scenes of the year which we keep threatening um the closing scenes of St Maud will stay with you for many 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 years to come it's one of the most powerful uh, horror endings i've seen in a while to be honest i'd say it's probably it's up there with that scene from hereditary in terms of it you just don't want to look at it and it makes you feel you'll need a bath when you finish St Maud but it's a fantastic fantastic horror film and more than worth the hype but yes it should be still on if you've got a cinema open near you i'd urge you to check it out um pete you tried to see yeah, this. i was gonna say what i'd happened? need to come to bath if i wanted to see this movie because uh, yeah, you would do yes, probably yeah so yeah. um oh you'll, you'll love it paul i um made sure that on the very last day that city world had its doors open i booked myself some time some me time in the middle of the afternoon where i was going to see i think it was about a a 3.30 screening of St Maud. There were three screenings, including that one, still to come that day. Um, but I went along. The only time I could really afford in that day was the afternoon. Sat in the screen, nothing on the screen. It seemed like maybe we were in the wrong screen, but there were a number of people there, all convinced that we were in the right place for this movie. Time goes by, time goes by, time goes by. Various amounts of complaining. I went out a couple of times. Then, finally, after being in the screen for well over half an hour, we got the uh, Studio Canal ident on the screen, which then froze. Yes, excited uh, at that point. <laughs> yeah, we, we were then, it was then restarted. It froze again. 
Uh, and then we got someone come in to say, if we can't fix the issue in the next 10 minutes, we're going to have to refund you, which is irrelevant to someone with a, an unlimited card, yeah. of course. Uh, but uh, we need to clean the screen out for COVID purposes for the next screening. Fine. Um, finally, the film starts. We get as far as the second scene, which is a, a very uh, low lit prayer scene. Yeah. And during the prayer Film freezes again, and that is good night to that film. Good night to the cinema. Uh, I thought I'll rebook for later in the day. They cancelled all of the screenings that day of Saint Maud. So um, I was, I was having to be sort of almost zen with the situation because I felt so much rage inside myself that actually I went out to the desk and was just very pleasant to everyone because, as we touched on at the beginning of the show, it would be utterly counterproductive and counterintuitive to rage at the people who are on their last day of work before they get booted out the doors so I didn't do that I got some free chocolate I went home with my tail between my legs and thought well I'll see another film in four months or whenever it might be five months at that cinema you know all being well god willing etc so yeah St. Maud didn't work out for me I'm going to catch it as soon as I can on streaming and then I'll give you my thoughts in due course yeah it's it's worth it's worth the wait it is well worth the wait it was a it's a good it's a solid I wouldn't say it's, yeah it, no it's a very solid very very solid horror debut and well worth checking out so yeah definitely definitely give it a look um that puts it over to your turn I think Well, effective horror debut worth checking out. Not quite words that I would use to describe the next one. Um, (laughs) Not quite. But but I'm not saying that facetiously. I mean, this comes close, I think, to being a a decent piece of work. The film's archive from uh, this year, 2020, uh, from a British writer-director, Gavin Rothery. And it's one of those sort of sci-fi, horror-tinged kind of movies that feels very much like a calling card for a director almost like a showreel for what might be possible rather than a a, a necessarily particularly worthy film in its own right but I think the lack of worthiness at least from the place that I was you know observing this movie is is not is not the production design which is beautiful it's not the um the sort of bringing to life of robotic characters on a budget. This is set in a something like um, the Ex Machina territory. You've seen it as well, Paul, right? Yeah, weirdly enough, before we went on air, we, we were talking about, and I was like, I've seen that, and I remember very little from it. Is this got three robots in it? It does, yeah, yeah. and it turns it's out those are, now, yeah. Sorry, those are kind of three versions of the same person, quote-unquote, yeah. don't want to spoil anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, very much Ex Machina territory in the sense that you've got this um, lonesome figure played by Theo James who works in seeming isolation aside from some androids or robotic assistants in an outpost somewhere in a lush kind of jungle area surrounded by like waterfalls and foliage and stuff. Ex Machina in that sense. But what's interesting is Gavin Rothery worked on the film Moon um, with Duncan Jones, Duncan Jones film, right? Uh, With Sam Rockwell in the leading role. And I think that that both informs the way this film's put together. Um, there's a great deal of influence pulled from Moon here, I think, in the way oh, the thing's staged. Yeah. But, but it also, unfortunately, sort of shoots itself in the foot for that reason, because at the centre of Moon, as we all know, is um, Sam Rockwell, who is a guy more than capable of a massive amount of emotional range and charisma. These are things I would not use as descriptors <laughs> of the actor Theo James, who I just find to be one of the most tedious and lifeless male leads that I've seen in recent times. And I can't argue that Theo James 
isn't a very attractive man. He's a very well-built man. He's got good facial hair, Paul. He may be a, a viable action star, who knows, um, of a kind of slightly, you know, thinking man's action star persuasion. But in a role like this, when we have to spend so much time with the guy, it bored me to tears. And it can't be rescued by then Stacey Martin coming more... Um, front and centre in the film as the, the plot develops. It, the guy's longing to be with his wife, seemingly. We're treated to what is a rather um, genius slash ludicrous and frustrating twist ending, um, yeah. delete as appropriate. <laughs> yeah, it's, and, coming, it's all flooding back to me now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's all it's all beautiful to look at, but, but also it's sort of full of, of weird filler as well. It's got like these cutaway shots to falling water or to a flyover from an aerial position of the facility that are used again and again and again and again. And this stretches the runtime to close to two hours, which is entirely unnecessary for this project. So a bit of an odd one, bloated, a bit self-indulgent with a completely bad, well, terribly cast, I think, male lead in, in Theo James. But then there's loads to like about it. And Gavin Rothery may make a fantastic film in the future, but watch this space because this this ain't it. Um, what else have you got? i tell you what is a fantastic film. Uh, here and now, I'm going to throw this out there. That is Rocks, um, which came out, I think, last year originally. Um, I picked it up on a weird screen in Odeon a couple of weeks ago, actually, so it was nice to see it on the big screen, I'm not complaining. Um, it is now on Netflix. Um, this is directed by Sarah Gavron um, and tells the story of a young teenage girl struggling to take care of herself and her younger brother, um, having been abandoned by their single mother who... Um, it basically kind of leaves due to struggling with mental health issues. So it's kind of heartbreaking, social realistic drama. But what is fantastic about this is the way the cast were put together. They're, I believe all, they are, as far as I'm aware, all non-professional actors um, pulled from schools on the London estate in which this film was set. Um, so the performances, the film itself, the performances are just so, so genuine between the relationship between these schoolgirls. And basically it tells a story about, um, so you've got in the lead role, you've got... Um, Bucky Buckray plays Shola or Rocks as her name is. She's the girl. She's the girl struggling to take care of her younger brother. And it's just basically it's just incredibly heartwarming story about how these girl, these school friends just sort of pull together and help out their friend. But it's just an absolute, just such a heartwarming film. The the performances are brilliant. The chemistry between the cast is superb. Um, it runs a tight ninety minutes. Um, yeah, I just so much, so much love for this film. It just, I just left it sort of beaming with a massive smile on my face. Um, and then there was a Q and A afterwards, which showed, which showed all the young cast on stage and how they, how they met, how they bonded together. And yeah, it's just what a fantastic way to make a truly, truly believable um, and compelling drama um, around teenage girls at school in the current, in the current time. Yeah, it was really, really good. Can't recommend it highly enough. It is on Netflix at the moment, so there's no excuse not to check that one out if you haven't already. Mm, I'll tell you what's a compelling drama, Paul Anderson. The, the, <laughs> I like the, this. What the, the, plight, <laughs> the plight of our planet Earth. Uh, the plight of our planet Earth, Paul, it's dying. Um, Richard Attenborough. <laughs> Richard Attenborough? David Attenborough. Let's get, let's get Can our Can I just uh, jump in there for a second? I've yeah. got a confession to make, so, which my wife always finds hilarious, and I may or may not have told you this. For years and years and years, I assumed that Richard Attenborough was David Attenborough's father and couldn't understand why, they, why he looked, didn't look that much older than him. Uh, but anyway, moving on. <laughs> so th this is uh, Big D. Da David Attenborough has a new film um, available wide on Netflix. 
you're probably aware of it. Uh, most people have that platform at this point. Certainly with lockdown, I think the sign-up rate is, what, 99% of the population now? Uh, this one, David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. And what this is, is a kind of whistle-stop tour through the career and the life of this guy, this great naturalist who spent the best part of his 94 years on this earth, traveling the earth and living and breathing the natural environment. So the film sets about the task of framing the, this story of a life on our planet through the lens of initially what happened at um, Chernobyl. Uh, because the film opens up with David Attenborough walking through the wreckage of Chernobyl or what's left in the rubble of Chernobyl, including pretty much fully intact uh, high-rise buildings that are poking through foliage that's just grown around what's left and there's this clear visual metaphor about the way that sort of life endures and finds a way nature finds a way even against all the odds this is something that the film's going to cycle back to at the end when Attenborough pulls a Yui on this thing pulls us from a point of absolute despair about the how, how everything has gone totally down the toilet with the hope that maybe just maybe there might be time to pull this ship around um I think I have two main feelings about the documentary, really. One, it's it's going to be affecting. If you have, you know, a human heart, it, it's going to be affecting to see particularly the um, statistics that are used as sort of intertitles between sections showing uh, the population of the earth going up, the amount of um, vegetation like forest land and jungle on the earth going down as a percentage over time. The level of pollution, of course, going up, the destruction of things like the ice caps, uh, of course, increasing over that time. It seems urgent. It seems pretty vital. But then the other thought is it kind of doesn't feel urgent or vital enough. There's something about the way that the movie's put together. It's an hour and 23 minutes, which is a curious running time, somewhere between a television documentary on, you know, planet Earth, one of the episodes of that series or the Blue Planet and so on and so forth, or a feature, a real feature fleshed out documentary film. And there's something that feels a little bit glib about it and a little bit bullet pointed about it. And maybe it will connect, particularly maybe it will connect with a, a young audience, but maybe across the board, people will get more from it than perhaps I did. It's a well-made piece of work, but I think by the end, it feels a little bit undercooked for me forgive the accidental global warming pun um you've seen this i think yeah i i kind of see where you're coming from i think in the way in which he presents it i think i like the way in which he presents it because there's apart from there's a handful of moments when you can see him get emotional a lot of the time he's quite matter of fact which i quite like and i think that's more likely to hit home to people more cynical about these issues um so i quite like that I do see your point. It's almost like there could have been two films here. There could have been one for one film, which is okay. This is where we are. This is this is what I've done. It's kind of like a almost greatest hits of where he's been, um, in a way. That's 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 not meant to cheapen it because it's quite effective. But it's kind of what he does. This is where I've been, and then maybe part two where he goes. Okay, this is part one is where we are. We're fucked. Part two is what we can do going forward. What I quite liked about it was the fact it ends on a message of positivity. It doesn't the way the way he levels what we need to do. To, and certainly, when he talks about 
uh, improving fish stocks, renewable energy, it doesn't make it seem that difficult that to fix it. Um, and I'll be honest, I think there are certain facts in here that, that really drove something home for me is the fact when he said that 60% of the mammals on the planet are mammals that we breed to eat. And I think the other percentage are us and then 4% are other animals. Now, I'll be honest, that statistic, I've been a vegetarian for seven days now, Pete. Uh, Whoa. since watching that documentary you've buried the lead on this one uh -huh. Paul that should have been the headline at the <laughs> so, top of the show so it's worked for me um so I mean for me it's been effective I, could, I do see your point maybe there is I think that there is probably probably two films within this one film and it would be interesting to see I'd say both of those probably expanded into probably feature length documentaries themselves but I think it's done deliberately that way as to not seem overly preachy, not seem overly detailed, to try and bring more people on board than would normally yeah. relate to this kind yeah. of thing. I, I agree with all of that. And I, you know, I, I'm a person that really appreciates, you know, it's an understatement, really. I massively appreciate the work that David Attenborough does, although let's all remember that there's also a massive team of incredibly skilled camera yes. people, sound recordists and so on, who, who go about making and producing this incredible footage we've been blessed with for decades. But I guess it's stuff like you can't help the nagging feeling when things are bullet pointed down so small that like Attenborough very rarely comes at um, big business. He very rarely says anything about, you know, the massive contribution to global warming mm. and pollution of the earth made by particular a particular like um, cabal of, of companies. Uh, he he sort of um, drops in this thing about overpopulation, but then says a kind of wave away comment about how, oh, you know, look what happened when they, they introduced birth control in, in Asia, for example, but then doesn't really investigate that in, with any depth whatsoever. And it just it kind of feels then like, uh, uh, you know a bit token tokenistic i guess but by mm. the end of the documentary but but you know then you know coming on here and telling me that um you you're not eating meat at the moment all power to a film like this being out there and being out there wide because we need these messages and we need these messages heard loud and clear i think so it's hard to to sort of hate on something although that's you know far from what i'm doing but it's hard to do that when it's it's hard so no, i do i do so agree clearly in the I, right place no i think I, I see where you're coming from for sure and as i said yeah the things on like populations oh yeah and that like and i think maybe i think that maybe the reason they've done that is just to it ends on just so it keeps people feeling positive just mm. to go look we can fix this like population overpopulation is a big problem but we can fix it like this isn't no, this is a problem but we can fix it and i think I think it's probably a deliberate choice just to try and keep people ending on a positive vibe. Because if you end the film on everything's fucked, then no one's going to do anything about it. So I can, yeah, yeah I kind of I do see your point, but I think it's probably deliberate more than an oversight. Yeah, but then but then probably add 10 to 20 minutes to your runtime and just yeah. develop those ideas a little bit further is, I guess, yeah, yeah, all I'd yeah. hope for in addition. But yeah. but yeah, no, it's it's well worth the time and, and you know, um, check it out if you haven't already because there's lovely stuff in there as well, beautiful footage in there and, and some important words as well, important messages. Uh, anything else, Paul, from you? Uh, yeah, so I've got um, a, did you say indie sci-fi comedy? I don't think you did, but I'm throwing that in there as a link anyway. Uh, yeah, I've got a, an indie sci-fi comedy um, that is around about somewhere online um, called Save Yourselves. Um, this is directed by Alex Houston Fisher and Eleanor Wilson, who are directorial, but they write their writing duties here as well. Uh, I'm not aware of their work before, but um, I quite enjoyed this. Um, it's based around a young Brooklyn couple, sort of a very a very hip young Brooklyn couple who had to do an upstate cabin to have uh, a week away or week or a period of time completely disconnected from any electronic device, any electronic devices and social media. Uh, but while they are away, um, alien 
aliens, there's some kind of weird alien invasion happens and they have no idea because they're disconnected from their mobile devices. Um, it's very silly. It's a lot of fun. Um, I would say it's not all the jokes land all of the time, but I rather enjoyed this. I had a good time with this. We've got Sunita Mani starring in this, who appears to be on the up and up um, in lots and lots of films. Um, and then a, guy, a guy, actor I don't recognise called John Reynolds. Um, they play the kind of central hipster couple. They're brilliant in this. I think they've got a lot of chemistry together. Their comedic delivery is good. The if you watch the trailer, the aliens in it are kind of these sort of cute tribble, basically like tribbles from Star Trek. So you can see the tone of it. It's yeah. It's not going to change your life. Um, it's not probably going to make you laugh out loud. But it's the kind of film that at the moment, in the current time, if you feel if you feel yourself feeling a little bit low, bang on save yourselves and you can't go too far wrong. It's a very likeable um, sci-fi indie comedy. So yeah, check it out. Nice. Um, I, I thought I'd sort of bundle together three things for the uh, last little bit from me <laughs> on Popcorn Movies because these fit into a category which is sort of late 90s slash the year 2000 films that are relatively forgettable but I've decided are worth going back to uh, so uh, I will go back to them in very short order now uh, number one on the list is the Robert Rodriguez uh, directed film completely forgot that this was directed by Robert Rodriguez by the way uh, The Faculty and if I'm honest the main reason I went back to this is because um, I wanted to see a little bit of my, my long-term um uh, Bo Famke Jansen and it turns out Paul Famke Jansen's not actually in the faculty very much uh, and when she is in the faculty she has a pretty terrible fringe and I had not remembered that over all these years but um, of course this thing riffs heavily on Invasion of the Body Snatchers and what I like about the faculty is that they have actually some pretty sharp uh, sort of referential stuff in the film about not only living celebrity figures IRL but um, also sort of horror movie lore and at the centre of uh, all that stuff you've got a tiny tiny version of Elijah Wood a little boy version of Elijah <laughs> Wood just bumbling around um, and yeah I, I, I forgot what it was like to uh, I mean I say that Elijah Wood looks about the same age now to be fair 20 years removed 22 years removed from the faculty but yeah more power to him for that um, it, it was all right it was all right. It wasn't as good as I think I remembered it being. Um, the second in the list is Final Destination, which kicked off a Final Destination saga that I actually kind of rate. Um, I think the films are a lot of fun. I think just making horror movies based around the idea that you have uh, death by Rube Goldberg machine is just inherently enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, watching someone slip on a thing, trip over a thing, things set on fire, they get electrocuted. But it's all going to happen in a way that's slightly different to the way that they've prompted you to think it's going to happen well that all started here and that all started with a load of obnoxious irritating completely shallow teenage characters going on a flight and then some of them getting off the flight and cheating death of course this means that death's going to hunt them down in the order that they would have been killed if they were still on the plane because that's how death works um yeah good fun when people are getting killed in between that yeah you know, not a great deal of like acting chops between the collection of all the people on screen here. But, um, you know, Ali Lata does her best. I'll go easy. Uh, I think the series got quite a lot better after this. Uh, the last one is Gone in 60 Seconds, which is terrible. Um, if I'm honest, it is terrible. I mean, more terrible than you think it is terrible. Is this the one with Angelina Jolie with blonde dreadlocks? 
Yes, but again, like Famke Janssen in the faculty, I thought, well, I, I th in my mind, one of the peaks in terms of Angelina Jolie just looking otherworldly beautiful was gone in 60 seconds. Firstly, I'm not sure that stands up to too much scrutiny. Secondly, she's not in it that much. Again, she's not in it that much. She, she plays uh, some ridiculously titled character in this thing um that i'll that i'll find in due course oh sway she plays sway wayland or sway wayland uh but she's not got the stupidest name because nick cage's character in this do you remember it no not off the top of my head go on <laughs> memphis reigns <laughs> memphis, memphis reigns memphis reigns whose brother of course to nick cage who's the most similar person to nick cage in the world definitely giovanni rabisi uh, so we buy them as brothers um and this thing is so poorly directed so badly cut together so inept when it comes to the action sequences and the car chases that should make it exciting and it's ballooned out somehow to two hours worth of quote-unquote content there's very little to recommend it other than some sort of weird off-kilter Nick Cage stuff that we come to know and love. Uh, there's, yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I think at the time when this thing came out, I would have been, what, like 16 years old or something like that. And there was just such a thrill to going to see a sort of knockabout action movie in the cinema uh, with like shiny cars and sexy people. And I think that blinded me quite a lot. Or I just didn't really know what I was looking at because <laughs> with with older eyes, Paul, but perhaps uh, in some way fresher eyes. Yeah, Gone in 60 Seconds is trash. And in it, uh, Vinnie Jones, if you remember, plays a character that's mute. Until yeah. hilariously, at the end of the film, he <laughs> sort he of, he like philosophizes about the nature of uh, combat. He like quotes the art of war or something like that at the end of the movie. But yeah, not good. File under not good. Uh, anything else? I'll tell you what is good and not just good. Very good. And not just very good. Fucking incredible. Uh, Michael Mann. I said I've been watching some Michael Mann films. Uh, the Insider I rewatched for the first time, I think, since it came out from 1999. Uh, this stars Al Pacino and Russell Crowe with um, Pacino as a 60, 60 Minutes producer. Um, this is based on a true story and Russell Crowe as a whistleblower. He worked as a fairly senior position in a big tobacco company. Um, and this is just an example that Michael Mann can make absolutely anything exciting. I mean, this is... A very, very dialogue-heavy film. There's very little action in it. There's very little kind. There's very little guns. There's very little anything else you can probably associate widely associate with Michael Mann films. Um, it's a very talky film, but my God, is it tense! My God, it just gripped me to the screen for all of the two hours and thirty-seven minutes. I think the the actors are on. I don't think I've seen them on better form, to be honest. Like they play off very well together. This this came out just before Gladiator, I think, or around about the same time as Gladiator. To very little acclaim, sank with it almost without a trace at the box office. But for me, it's absolutely one of Michael Mann's best films. Pacino chews up the scenery in a way that Pacino can do. Um, and it's just a really terrifying eye-opener because they, Michael Mann is, is certainly a director that does his research. So there's moments in the courtroom where um, he first, where, where Russell Crowe's character is first kind of given his evidence. And Michael Mann used the same courtroom where the evidence was given. He cast the, I think the district attorney in this is actually played by the district attorney at the time. Uh, that was involved in the case. So Michael Mann's attention to detail is is second to none. And yeah, what my there is not a, there's nothing that Michael Mann can't make exciting. And for considering this is just people talking, uh, I was literally like white knuckle glued to the edge of my seat. I absolutely love this film. And if you haven't seen it, I implore everyone to watch it at once. How's that for positivity? <laughs> Much better. Yeah. Let's keep the positivity going. We'll bounce out and we'll be right back with coming attractions after this. 
So yeah, coming attractions, uh, the part of the show where we talk about what films are out um, in the next week or so and what films we're excited to see generally. So we've got three streaming releases this week. Um, Pete, what have we got first? First up on the block is uh, Rebecca. This one has just arrived on Netflix, I think today perhaps. Uh, This one directed by your boy, Ben Wheatley, and starring uh, Lily James, Army Hammer and Kristen Scott Thomas. Uh, telling the story of a young newlywed who arrives at her husband's imposing family estate on a windswept English coast and finds herself battling the shadows of his first wife, Rebecca, whose legacy lives on in the house long after her death. Obviously, this is a reworking of a classic text. Um, where are you at with expectation levels here, Paul? This is what we do in this section. Are you excited? Are you going to get right to this as soon as possible? I'm. It's a new... It's a new Ben Wheatley film, so I will watch it fairly quickly. Um, I haven't read the book and I haven't seen the Hitchcock version, so I know very little about the actual subject matter and the story itself. So maybe I'll try and squeeze the Hitchcock version, the Hitchcock version in first. Maybe I won't, but it's a new Ben Wheatley film. Army Hammer, when directed well, is quite watchable. Lily James, for me, needs to do better work um, or be in more interesting films. And Christian Scott Thomas is Christian Scott Thomas. So excited about the cast, excited this Ben Wheatley, so we'll definitely see it. Um, I'm confident that this will be decent, I think. Yeah, I mean, to to add to the positivity, one of my favourite actors of a certain type, at least character actors, I would say, Anne Dowd is in this thing, in the supporting cast as well, and she's generally excellent in in almost everything. On the less positive side, Metascore sitting at 47 at the moment, for what that's worth. So we'll see, and we may well feature review it on the show, given, you know, our affinity and and love for um, Ben Wheatley's work in the past, at least. So... Uh, this is, I notice, a, uh, a Jane Goldman joint in terms of uh, writing duties, which is something that leaves me a little bit conflicted, perhaps. But we'll see how it pans out. And um, yeah, we'll report back in due course. Check it out this week. Obviously, if you have Netflix popping off at home. Uh, in addition, Paul, we have Borat, subsequent movie film, to give it its full <laughs> title. Uh, this one, of course, the follow up to Borat, what, learnings of a something, 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 something. I've yeah i can't remember um (laughs) this one directed by jason walliner and of course starring sasha baron cohen um how you're feeling we've spoken about it a tiny bit on the show um here i watched the first one again uh a few nights ago actually um and yeah it sheds a fine line between kind of stupid bad taste and quite funny in places but i have that kind of sense of humor that borat is a character that makes me laugh um, from the little reading I've been doing of it today, I think some reviews went live today. Um, it apparently goes in a lot harder on the satire kind of thing, and is is kind of takes less prisoners than even Borat did, I think, from the sound of it. So, yeah, of all the Shasha Baron Cohen characters, I think we said this on the last show. I think he is certainly the one the one that appeals to me the most. I don't think Baron Cohen's always quite as clever as he thinks he is in terms of a filmmaker or a satirist, but. Hey ho! I'm I'm looking forward to this. I think it will be it will be very silly. I think it will be definitely funny, um, without a doubt. Yeah, so this yeah. this one um, available this Friday. So about the time the show's going to go up, which is October twenty third on Prime Video. So again, check it out if you have that service available to yourselves. And we will report back as we um, generally do. Uh, on the rocks also Paul coming out this week the new one from writer director Sophia Coppola a director and writer that I think we've had 
mixed to good feelings about in the past. Um, uh, there's that one about home invasions that I thought was absolute pap. But then uh, there have been uh, bits of work that have been much, much better from Coppola. And how are you feeling here about On the Rocks? This is the story of a young mother who reconnects with a larger-than-life playboy father on an adventure through New York. At the centre, we have Bill Murray and Rashida Jones, of course. Bill Murray, who's reunited with Coppola from the days of Lost in Translation. Excited? Not excited? Excited. I mean, they're two very, very talented actors, so I'm excited to see them work together. And I think Sophia Coppola, um, A Good Day, makes some incredible films. I really, really like Lost in Translation. It's a film that stuck with me for many, many years. Um, And Bill Murray... I mean, I don't think Bill Murray really does give bad performances, to be honest. Um, He's he's always very, very watchable. Um, And, yeah, Rosita Jones, it'd be interesting to see her in a sort of in a bigger role than I guess we're used to seeing her in uh well certainly from my perspective anyway so yeah no I'm I'm excited for this one um yeah and it is on Apple TV uh, over here from Friday the 23rd and and in the sort of endowed category of uh, actresses that I like a lot in supporting roles Jenny Slate's in this okay, one yes. um, so that's an- okay Another reason to be into it. So yeah, that's On The Rocks. So those three, Rebecca, the new Borat movie and On The Rocks will all be available this week, uh, respectively on Netflix, Amazon Prime Video and Apple TV Plus. Is that what we're calling that now? Cool. Uh, So yeah, check them out. Give us your thoughts. Contact us via social media if you have thoughts about any of those films on release or in the coming weeks. And we'll get back to them, as we say, with feature reviews and comments. If not features, then popcorn reviews incoming but for now paul let's check out of this section and we'll check back in as we settle into the cinema for our double feature review section this week paul what have we got on the slate this Uh, week so this week on the slate we've got the latest film from uh, writer director miranda july which is kajillionaire Um, and we've got the latest film from writer director believe it or not aaron sorkin uh, the trial of the chicago seven um so we'll be back after this with our thoughts on kajillionaire So, yeah, two films of a a very different type to review this week, Paul. And the first of those, as you've mentioned, is Kajillionaire from writer-director Miranda July following up on her 2011, believe it or not, previous feature film, which was The Future, a film that I liked a a great deal, actually. Um, Having seen Me, You and Everyone We Know previous to that, I think my expectations were sort of middling. I liked her, her first feature, but... The future, I thought, was was kind of intriguing and, and for me marked out quite a singular voice in, in indie filmmaking. And here we have long in the making follow-up Kajillionaire with at its centre a character played by Evan Rachel Wood sort of playing... Jason Mewes from Jay and Silent Bob sort of playing Miranda July. Uh, More on that as we go forward with our thoughts. Uh, In supporting roles, we also have a couple of great turns from Richard Jenkins and Deborah Winger. And then a little bit later on into our running time, an important addition to that ensemble in the form of Gina Rodriguez that people know from Jane the Virgin and elsewhere. Um, There's a lot, a lot to talk about, but the basic setup here on Kajillionaire is that we meet a family of grifters, uh, parents played by Winger and Jenkins and the daughter played by Evan Rachel Wood, who spend every waking hour trying to run um, 
what would we call these? Grifts. Uh, there's another word that I'm looking for and it escapes me right now, but they've always got an angle. They've always got a way to rip someone off. They've got a, always got a way to steal something. They've got a way to confidence trick someone. But the ideas they have are hardly, you know, David Mamet levels of uh, ingenuity. They're more like just kind of scummy ways to, to game the system, I think, <laughs> yeah, for want I of a better a description. description. Yeah. Um, and and they're, they're sort of odd characters. They behave in ways that are almost unrecognizable to regular human beings um we open the film seeing uh, evan rachel wood's character contort her body into various positions so as to escape view of cameras in the post office so that she can get in to reach through a post office po box and try to effectively steal someone's mail uh, that's about the level they're operating at but we'll get into our full thoughts on this oddity of a movie kajillionaire right after we hear a little clip i'm melanie right okay uh melanie Meet old Dolio. Old what? Dolio. Old Dolio. Okay, I like that. I like that. <sighs> See, this is exactly the kind of thing that I've been wanting. Don't touch. Huh? Don't touch the table. I've been through trimmers a lot smaller than this. It just turns everything electric. It's like zap. Because this is the way the big one starts. With the noise, it just keeps building and building and building. And this one's not big one will be loud. I mean, if you're lucky, you'll get crushed. And then you'll, you'll just die right then and there. Immediately. A never-ending void. Wow. So, YOLO. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, I think oddity um, certainly is a good way to is a good way to start on this. This is my first experience, Pete, of a Miranda July film. I, uh, for my sins, I've not seen Me You and Everyone We Know, and certainly not seen was it Future? Did you say was the was the the, the future the future? So this is I've come into this cold really, um, and I have to say from the outgoing, it's I, it's always nice to see. It's always nice to in, discover a filmmaker I've not discovered before whose film is from the moment one just literally dripping with character um that from the opening scenes i was like okay i like this this is this is a voice this is a distinctive voice and i think i'm going to enjoy this and i, I did i'll be honest i think for the most part i really did um pete you what what did you think what were your first impressions going into the film um first impression well first of as i said in the in the lead-in I was pretty excited to see what Miranda July had done next. I've read one of her novels. She's a writer. She's a, 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 a sort of a performance artist of sorts. She is a filmmaker, of course. In, and I think I've sort of, from a bit of a, a distance, admired her work for a little while. So I was definitely um, coming in fairly hot on this one. And then to be introduced to, well, like I said, Evan Rachel Wood here is channeling uh, Jason Muse from from Jay and Silent Bob, and there's this thing she does throughout the sort of physical characterization of that character, the the embodiment of that character, where she's constantly got her arms dead straight <laughs> in front of herself, like against flat against her body in front of herself, and it sort of says so much about who this character is and the level of repression that's operative within her. I mean, we learn pretty quickly I suppose or at least observe pretty quickly that this is a daughter in name only I mean she's not treated as a daughter but rather as a sort of shady business partner by both of her parents who see her as a you know a value proposition and, and nothing more than that what can she offer to the team and in fact this is where or why we're introduced to the Gina Rodriguez character later on in the film because they see an opportunity to recruit someone new basically to their to their team of 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 sort of low lifes for a, 
for want of a better term. And, and this is where I think the film kicks into a higher gear because we set two characters against each other so deliberately in the form of Rodriguez, who is all life, vivacious. Even her skin tone is sort of full of, of it, having been exposed to the sun having smiled in the past and these kinds of basic human pleasures that um, you definitely don't attach to Evan Rachel Wood's character who can't comprehend of the reasons for things like dancing or laughter or chit chat because all she's been trained to do is rip people off. So yeah, uh, to answer your question a bit more succinctly, I was excited for the film and um, I've got lots of good things to say about it, but I want to hear some more from you and, and I guess what else you felt about the movie and how it developed and played out, I guess, from your point yeah, of view. Yeah, no, no, yeah, as I said, no, I did, for, the, for the most part, I did, I enjoyed this a lot. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the performances, the, I mean, the writing is very, very sharp. It's a very, it's a very witty script, although not quite as laugh out loud funny as maybe, I mean, maybe that's down to my expectation of it. I don't know. That would be my only, I'll get my slight gripe out of the way first. And it is a, it is a slight gripe. It didn't, never made me laugh as much as I was anticipating it to. And I don't know whether that's because the trailer did make me laugh out loud funny. I'd already seen those jokes or whether that's just me going in expecting a different film to the one that I got. So that may, that might be on me. Um, but that's not to say that I didn't like it. I didn't have a, a lot of love for it because I did. I think it's a, it's a really good piece of work. Um, yeah, absolutely echo what you say about Evan Rachel Wood. I think everyone's great in this. Um, I will say but Evan Rachel Wood is, I'd say, it's probably one of the best performances I've seen from her full stop, I think. I think her kind of weird awkward performance is just is just second to none like i i don't i've, I've seen her in other films i've seen her in other films so i know she's not this awkward in real life but you'd be forgiven for thinking this was her it's that can is that convincing a performance of someone that's just like through no kind of we're definitely through no fault of her own through her upbringing has just been completely sheltered from things has no real idea of how the world works and just delivers that kind of delivers that level of naivety but also there's that element to a character that is just quite ruthless in terms of in terms of getting what she wants and I like that balance of kind of ruthlessness and naivety I think is it's not something you would normally see in a character and I think that that really worked and I think she conveys that really really well um, and especially the um, the chemistry between her and Drina Rodriguez is is um, exceptional I think in this it's just an, a very unlikely unlikely relationship forms between the two of them that you wouldn't see coming when you first meet the two characters but by the end absolutely makes sense I think so yeah I think go on sorry Pete jump in yeah no I was just gonna say that relationship it struck me reminded me a little bit of something like the relationship between Vinnie G and uh, Christina Ricci in um, Buffalo 66 yeah that's a good comparison. in the sense of yeah just in the sense of I guess the 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 um uh, Vincent Gallo character being so uh, ill at ease with sort of human contact and interaction and you see that with with Evan Rachel Wood's character here and I think that what you said about laughs in the film I mean I've got two things I guess to say on that one is I pissed myself at a couple of things they said in this movie <laughs> but like they're lines that if you repeat them are not per se jokes they require the context of the film yeah. when Evan Rachel Wood says um what what did she say? Why are there crackers on a plate? It just like hit me like a like a freight train. But that doesn't make any sense outside the context of the film. Um, 
but having said that, to to advertise the movie as a comedy would be to, I think, both be inaccurate and do it a disservice because it, Miranda July is is interested in, I think, um, in sort of human drama more than she is in just being outright funny. But then, but then, comedy arises from that at times, and and how that strikes you, I think, de- depends a little bit on your sensibilities and your kind of disposition and and how much you can tolerate the kind of slow build of a thing like this. But once it gets to its like the human drama meat of things in the last act of the film and particularly that kind of um, surreal sequence that takes place in a dark bathroom i i was i was kind of a bit swoony about the whole operation <laughs> to be honest um and certainly there was a i guess there was a part of me that felt like about there somewhere that could have ended the film but yeah i kind of see it, i see your point yeah it was still pulled off, I thought, with with a great deal of aplomb. And it was the kind of film that, although it may not end up being sort of my favourite film of the year, I it made me feel a certain set of things that were particular and unique to this filmmaker. And and I think that's such a credit to someone like Miranda July. There, there are, for me, a, a handful of filmmakers at any one time that really distinct me, distinctly like move me into maybe emotional territory that is not the, quite the same as what other filmmakers are doing. And I think this year that's happened a, a few times only, and this is one of those times. So, um, yeah, no, I thought it was great. And by the way, Kajillion Air, the title of the film, which is a sort of memorable one, um, is mentioned one time by Richard Jenkins in the whole yes. movie when he sort of offhandedly says, we know everybody these days just wants to be a Kajillion Air, uh, because the, the two of them, he and Deborah Winger, who are both fantastic in this, uh, are obsessed with sort of the idea that they're everything around them is a sort of conspiracy acting against them, which is something that rings very true with the kind of current climate that we live in, I think. Um, Yeah, so people being conspiracy theorists and everyone being out for themselves, it feels as if Miranda July just might be a human being in the year 2020 and might be observing (laughs) some of the things going on. But yeah, I I like this. I like this a great deal. I, I liked being in the world and I liked how it made me feel and and you know why aren't you wearing more clothes etc can we return the hot tub if we haven't installed it uh it's it's time to bucket the walls or whatever she says at one point about the um the disused office building oh those there's those there's those incredible scenes because there's the incredible scenes where they're they're kind of living in this disused office building below a soap sud Mm. a factory that makes soap suds i think that i'm pretty sure that's what it does which again i was like that felt kind of very like michelle gondry kind of spoke jones-esque to me um and then you've got these incredible scenes where I think it's once a day at half past two they have to be at home to clean the walls because the soap suds mm. overflow and just completely overrun one wall of their house stroke office yeah. block and at that point I was like okay now I'm, I'm into this like I, I like I like where I like where she's going with this so yeah there's, there's as I said I, I, like yeah I didn't find it quite as funny as you I don't think but again any film with this amount of character for me is is onto a winner yeah man and just like that bit where um in Buffalo 66 Gallo goes into the uh, coffee house and asks for one of those heart-shaped cookies he doesn't know why it's for his girlfriend (laughs) and then he buys one for the other guy in the coffee shop that he doesn't know for no reason like the bit where Gina Rodriguez says to the the uh, old Dolio we should say by the way the name of (laughs) of Everett's character 
later, says to her, you know, I, um, I will call you, uh, what's the word? Hun. I'll call you Hun for $1,500 or whatever it is. Watch the film. It will make more sense. Uh, and they leave together kind of hand in hand to go off and have human experiences of like connection with someone and opening up to someone and feeling happy like man I just it, it, it this is a I don't know I don't know I don't want to sound like I'm being wanky about it but I just think it's a smart filmmaker making a smart film and that should be very much encouraged in these quote-unquote troubled times uh is that check it out and stuff and as we were saying in the previews as well please let us know you know if you fully disagree and you think that it was you know pretentious garbage or it's your film of the year either way there's no judgment here we'd love to hear from you on that one get at us via social channels but paul any last words on congillionaire or should we move on to the next one uh, no, I'm with you, Pete. I really enjoyed it. Um, I would, yeah, check it out if you can. It is, it is at cinemas at the moment. Again, I suppose the the flip side of this lack of blockbuster releases is that things like this are going into multiplexes, which is incredible. Sorry to rub the salt in the wounds again. Uh, but yeah, it's an incredible position to be in at the moment where things like this and a lot of indie releases are, one well, indie release, indie and bunny ears releases um, are certainly hitting multiplexes. So yeah, this is on general release at the moment. So yeah, a- absolutely check it out if you want a film with character. Cajillionaire uh, is it. Um, next up, we've got The Trial of the Chicago 7. So second feature up, this is The Trial of the Chicago 7 from our guy, writer-director Aaron Verbosity Sorkin. Um, (laughs) In this one, as you may have guessed, we are told or retold the story of the Chicago 7, a group of seven people who were placed on trial effectively on the claim that they led uh, a violent protest against the Vietnam War in Chicago in 1968. Amongst this very, very, very starry cast are the likes of the aforementioned on this show, Sasha Baron Cohen, in a great deal more of a, a serious role, I suppose, than uh, than Borat's latest outing. Uh, in addition to the likes of uh, Alex Sharp, Eddie Redmayne, um, your boy uh, an actor that I like a great deal in John Carroll Lynch that I think goes a little bit unsung and uh, it tends to be excellent Uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen who we mentioned earlier on um, with the connection to the Furiosa movie Mark Rylance who is generally admired and excellent most places Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is here all sorts of big names. Oh we've got Frank 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 Langella yeah of course and come on my boy from Succession Jeremy Strong yeah uh, he's great in this. Um, I mean, the cast, like every, literally, uh, Michael Keaton appears at one point. Honestly, it's one of those films I was watching it, I was like, fuck off, no way he's in it. And then like, ah, oh, fuck off, they're in it. It's like the cast just keeps, like, they just keep just like, here's someone else. Yeah, it's almost <laughs> like, uh, you know, big name actors would want to attach themselves to uh, an award winning screenwriter and, and you know, yeah. uh, erstwhile director yeah. in Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, th- this is that story, but this is that story told mostly from the courtroom with then cut in pieces from the day of protests and the uh, reaction to said protests um, intermittently sort of throughout the film's runtime but very much a courtroom drama in the truest sense Uh, more on our thoughts right after this clip do you have contempt for your government I'll tell you, Mr. Schultz, it's nothing compared to the contempt my government has for me. We've heard testimony from 27 witnesses under oath that say you hoped for a confrontation with the police that your plans for the convention were designed specifically 
to draw the police into a confrontation. Well, if I'd known it was going to be the first wish of mine that came true, I would have aimed a lot higher. It's a yes or no question. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping for a confrontation with the police? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. So, as we mentioned before the clip, this is directed, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. Um, this is basically, you could almost call this Aaron Sorkin the movie. Um, this is so, so Aaron Sorkin at times that it it's painfully Aaron Sorkin at times. But that's not a bad thing because I'm going to come straight out of the gate here and say I thought this was superb. I am. I happen to be a huge fan of Aaron Sorkin. I love his work on The West Wing. Um, I love the, the other political films that he's written. Molly's Game, it was a slightly disappointing effort from him, I think. I don't think the direction was all that exciting. But this kind of thing, I think, in the fact that it's sort of staged in a courtroom, is perfect, perfect foil for Sorkin's style, perfect foil for Sorkin's dialogue, um, and just perfectly suited, I think, to to the director and to the director and indeed writer here. Um, and I think it's, it's the kind of, if he is going to direct, then this is the kind of thing I think he should direct because he is he's a playwright his history before I think the West Wing is a playwright so he's familiar with theatre and this does feel certainly the setup in the courtroom it's very static it does feel very theatre-y it's not necessarily taking away anything from the film but I think it's perfectly suited to Aaron Sorkin what I will say off the bat is I know there are detractors of Aaron Sorkin out there if you don't like Aaron Sorkin then steer well clear of this because it will not change your mind but opening gambit I thought this was superb I thought the, the performances were fantastic the film had me gripped from start to finish um, even if it does drift slightly too far into heavy-handed melodrama in places but that's a minor gripe with a film that I, I honestly would hard-pressed to find a lot of fault with to be honest Pete yeah I mean I I suppose I, I feel as though that there, there might be we're we're in something of a bubble when we tend to you know reel off names of people and the last five things that they did and stuff like that and I and I mm. often have to remind myself that that's not how most people um, I would say approach <laughs> watching true. stuff and so I think that you could certainly enjoy the trial of the Chicago Seven from the perspective that this is simply a well structured well-written piece of courtroom drama and I think that is important to say because there can be such a mystique around a particular name uh, like Sorkin's that it's almost as if it's like a closed circle or some sort of club that you have to be you know signed up member of and I think that's far from the case with The Trial of Chicago 7 as much as for somebody who knows what they're listening to this is very distinctly you know this is like this is like a Metallica playing the first riff of something that you know yeah. like the back of your hand I mean as soon as you hear, yeah. hear particular exchanges you know who you're dealing with so you know going as far back as A Few Good Men this guy has been churning out this kind of whip sharp um, verbiage between characters you know film after film after film as a writer and now as a writer director as well but with that all having been said I think that it also the work requires or Sorkin's writ written output anyway requires really strong work from his actors as well and I think that to the film's credit there are some very good performances here and there kind of have to be because as you say Paul it is pretty stagey it's pretty theatrical it's pretty static and without good performances I think you wouldn't be left with much to get your teeth into uh, perhaps here I would say of those performances um, Eddie Redmayne's I'm not going to say is 
astonishing or outstanding. But what I did appreciate about it is this is an Eddie Redmayne that we haven't seen very often. He's acting. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's not just being Eddie He's Redmayne. He's not just yeah. doing the simpering about to cry face that he tends to trade off of in a lot of the projects that at least I've seen. Here, he's a guy with a little bit more about him um and and i warmed to the character to a reasonable degree um i thought he was good i thought alex sharp was good as well i think joseph gordon levitt can handle this material sorkin's material very ably sasha baron cohen's accent went a bit up and down um but i think he was good here the only thing i guess that plays against him perhaps is that it's quite hard with someone like baron cohen to shake the fact that you're watching a guy so known for kind of way out there, caricaturish, comedic satire. So taking him seriously was a little bit of a challenge at first, albeit the character that he's playing is not entirely starchy and serious. I mean, far from it at times. So yeah, as the thing played out, I was pretty wrapped up with it, I suppose. Um, I don't know that it made me feel a great deal, the film. Um, but it certainly made me think it certainly was, was well put together. Um, and it was certainly well, um, delivered to the audience. Um, if that doesn't all sound a bit clinical, am I being unfair? This isn't even really a criticism, Paul. It's just, I suppose I, I find it a bit hard to get quote unquote excited about Aaron Sorkin stuff. I kind of stroke my chin and, and admire it and, um, and, and nod my head and then at the end of it, I'll look forward to the next one. But I, yeah, do, do you know what I mean at all? I don't. It doesn't make me feel I, I, a great deal. I think I, I think I know what you mean. Um, personally, I did get the the only other film I've seen that's probably as exciting and is as speech heavy as this one. Uh, weirdly enough, I talked about it earlier on the show was The Insider. I wouldn't say this is quite as exciting as The Insider, but I was. I'll be honest, I was glued to it. And I, and again, I think it does come down to a the script. And we know Aaron Sorkin can write well. There's no there's no doubting that. Um, his dialogue is fantastic. He's clearly he clearly reads around his subjects. He clearly does his research, and that comes across. Um, and I think it, yeah, it's the performances here. It's yeah, it, a good script is a good script's a good script. But if it's badly delivered, then it's it's not not entirely worthless. But you know where I'm coming from. It's kind of exactly what you said. And I think the strength of some of the performances here. I mean, Frank Langella is the crazy judge. Is I mean, Frank, where's Frank Langella been for the past few years? Like, give him more films. Maybe maybe he's being picked about what he does. He is an incredibly powerful actor, and he is absolutely superb as this sort of just asshole judge here um just and again it's the strength of performances and no i i really I, i'll be honest i didn't really want this to end i was absolutely glued to it um absolutely glued to it i do take your point on sasha baron cohen um i think that's something that if he does more of these roles you just get used to his face um but i still think he did a good job here and yeah eddie remade is not an actor i'm normally a fan of as everyone who listens to the show on a regular basis is aware and i think he did a decent job here so I'll be honest. This, this for me, I thought it was great. I said my only, my only slight gripe is that it did drift, sort of, too, slightly, slightly too heavily towards overt melodrama towards the end. But again, like, and again, that's not to say you have to have seen The West Wing to appreciate this. And your point is valid on that one. But again, if, like, this is, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a very theatrical. It's a very feel good ending for me. Sl- ever so slightly overplayed, I thought at the end. Yeah. Um. But it's a very minor gripe with a film that absolutely. Gripped yeah, because it's it's interesting isn't it it feels at once um pretty prescient and pretty um 
like a, a story that kind of needed to be revisited, or at least it feels like there's very strong justification within the current climate for, for revisiting a situation where uh, protest against the powers that be is is trampled underfoot in the way that at least initially it is here. Yet at the same time, when the music swells to the level that it does when Eddie Redmayne decides to do a certain thing with his closing yeah. words, the, the chance of the whole world is watching may as well be, you know, give us awards at that point. And that, and that feels a little um, un, unnecessary or, or like you say, maybe a little bit overdone, which is, is perhaps a, a bit of a rub on the movie and... Um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. It's an interesting one because, like, if this were a series and it had another five episodes of an equal length, I would chew them up. I'd, I'd watch them and, and enjoy them and admire the work. Um, as it is, as a, a sort of two-hour film on its own terms, I think, yeah, I mean, things like like the, the stuff with Frank Langella, it's, I guess I felt watching it like I'd like to know more about how much poetic license has been taken with the movie because obviously mm. there is some and obviously this isn't verbatim what went down in that courtroom and I don't think it pretends to be as such either. Um, but, you know, to, the, the point to which you're kind of maddened along with the guys who are here on trial where everything they attempt to do in the courtroom is just not allowed essentially because one man decides that his ego is more important than the than the justice system is um is really something to behold so yeah i don't know split feelings i was i was wrapped up in it whilst it was whilst it was going i think that that there's a lot to like about the movie um i'm glad that i see, that i saw it um i i like aaron sorkin i just don't i don't hold him in sort of sort of um you know the rarefied air of maybe some of my very favorite filmmakers i suppose yeah i think i, I don't that's all fair i mean for me i'll be honest i loved it I, I genuinely genuinely loved it i was gripped the entire time um i thought the performances were great i think it's certainly up there in the upper echelons of what's on netflix and possibly even will tip possibly even tip into my top 10 films of the year i just thought it was just an incredibly incredibly well written incredibly polished and very well put together production that i think really really could have been dull in the wrong hands um, because of its static nature, because of the fact it's quite theatrical and it really, really wasn't. And I think that takes a special kind of talent to make a film that for the, I mean, there are flashbacks. It's not all set in a courtroom in fairness, which help, but yeah, I think it takes a special kind of writing talent and a special kind of performances to make some, to, to hold your interest for two hours when it's as static as this. And I think the trial of the Scarlet seven does that remarkably well. So yeah, I, I, hands down, I, I loved it with the minor reservations. It's heavy handed in parts, yeah. but otherwise super. And, and, respect and shouts to the uh to the english teachers and writers of the world of which i am one for the uh ongoing gag slash important point in the plot about possessive pronouns we don't get enough of that <laughs> don't get enough possessive pronoun drama in uh in in film in modern film so let's have more and aaron sorkin's your boy when it comes to that kind of writing so uh yeah the, lo loads to like man i think we've been quite quite blessed with this week's features actually in Kajillionaire and trial of chicago seven because both of them are well worth your time and you know anything that either one of us have said in the in the slight negatives or slightly critical column this week I think should not for a second take away from the fact that both of them are, are worth seeking out and um, you know sharing your thoughts with with us in due course as well when you have had the chance to do that Paul it's at this point that we usually dip out of features and we enter the credit section of the show as the credits roll and we let people go after 
um, staying with us for, for what has become an inordinate amount of time now, given that we're filling up two weeks worth of content into, uh, into one <laughs> show. But uh, have you got anything in particular you want to give credit to this week before we bow out? Uh, I've just started watching the TV show Banshee, uh, which was, I believe, written by Alan Ball uh, and stars... Um, I've completely forgotten the guy's name now, so let's work it out. The guy that plays Homelander in The Boys, um, who is incredible in The Boys, and also he's fantastic in this, and I will tell you his name in just a moment. Uh, his name is Anthony Starr, um, who you said you will know as Homelander from The Boys. This is a TV show from way back in... I say way back, back in 2013. Um, that it basically is... Anthony Starr plays um, an ex-con who comes out of jail and through a series of unfortunate circumstances ends up taking on the identity of as the sheriff of the small town of Banshee who ends up being murdered in a bar that he's in. So you've got an ex-con playing a sheriff. Uh, it's written by Alan Ball. Um, so yeah, it's ultra-violent. It's very, very silly. But my God, is it good fun. Um, so I'm only on uh, three episodes in at the moment. Um, so yeah, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's on Now TV. I'm having a great time with it. There's four seasons of it. That's Banshee. Um, and maybe if it comes up again in credits in a few weeks' time, you know it's you know it's remained uh, you know it's remained strong. Yeah, completely over the top. A lot of fun. Check it out. Nice. Um, for me this week, or at least the thing that's that's at the front and center of my memory that I wanted to give a shout out to on the show it's got to be the thing that dropped at the end of last weekend or the beginning of this week depending where you are in the world and that's uh, the holy kalama vote thing that uh, RTJ run the jewels put out this is the only live performance of RTJ for this year because of the state of the world uh, no live shows have obviously been possible for them and anybody else so what they did is hooked up with adult swim and ben and jerry's believe it or not uh, and uh, Eric Andre, there's a lot of elements, a lot going on here. Uh, Eric Andre is your sort of um, MC in terms of introducing but not rapping uh, mercifully in this thing. He introduces the the performance of the entire album from start to finish as a, a kind of um, not fundraising drive, but a, a voter drive to encourage people to vote in the American election, presidential election, which is coming up on November 3rd. And then we get treated to the whole of RTJ4. And within that because it's an album that we don't talk about in the show really because it's a film show but it's an album that I've, I'm a bit <laughs> split on it's not my favorite of their their projects but there's a track on it that I mentioned previously on this show and and actually I think recited a part of a verse which is called Walking in the Snow which is the one in which a full year I think before the uh, George Floyd situation uh, Killer Mike penned this verse about having essentially a cop's knee on his neck and and being choked out on television which is incredibly incredibly uh, sort of relevant and prescient and all the more so for what happened subsequently when they perform that track they have a sort of indoor snow fake snow falling he does the verse up to the point where all the music drops out he says that particular line and then they had like a minute felt like a minute it might have been 30 seconds of just silence and it was, oh, wow. it was, I mean, given that we've all been robbed of live music, let's be, let's be fair, this, this year, it was such a powerful moment in terms of just, you know, you almost forget how much impact moments in, in live performance in general, but, but certainly in music can have. And this, this film, this thing, sorry, did feel maybe vital is over the top, but it felt, it felt like, 
like a very very worthy thing indeed and um you know just fucking cool as well if you like hip-hop music but this holy clamor vote and you don't have to like pay money or anything to see it you can watch it on youtube it's 45 minutes long it's there now i would really recommend it if you have even a passing interest in you know american politics hip-hop music the stylings of eric andre or the popular ice cream band uh, brand ben and jerry's uh, so, i mean so yeah uh, holy clamor <laughs> vote check it out um i guess that's just for us to say like social medias and we're done yeah so social media find us on strangers in the cinema on instagram uh strangers it's at stranger cinema on twitter and strangers cinema on facebook um and we'll, thank you for listening we'll be back next week with a halloween special um which is very exciting we will be back in a week i can assure you of that i'm slamming my fist down on the desk that we'll be back next week so uh yeah i look forward to it pete and uh thanks for listening listeners cheers shut up and sit down